Well, I'm joined uh, this morning by Mark Calabria, who is currently a senior advisor at the Cato Institute, however, also uh, was director of the federal or head of director of the federal housing financing finance agency and also chief economist to vice president Mike Pence. So you've got some real economic chops when it comes to housing policy, Mark, and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk to us today. Um, Really a pleasure to be here. That's great. A few weeks ago, a month ago, I saw a headline about a new rule regarding mortgage fees, and I just thought I didn't read it right. So I had to go back and think about it for a second. And I said to one of my colleagues, has anyone written about this idea? I think if you have higher credit scores, you now pay more for a mortgage than if you have a lower credit score. And when I talk to people about it, they're like, that's that. I can't really be right. I don't think that's right. And then I'm like, I think it actually is right. And so you've written about, you've been on the news a lot talking about this topic. I would love it if it's like, just for the layman, could you explain, number one, is this rule actually in effect and how does it work? So uh, there's a lot of pieces of this to, to pull away. So for starters, it, it, it's not actually a rule in the formal sense of a regulation that we think about. Either, or it's a directed pricing changes to Fannie and Freddie from not their regulator, but their conservator. Because again, remember that Fannie and Freddie are in conservatorship, essentially administrative bankruptcy. And it, it presents a weird situation where it allows the government to have a fair amount of pricing power over these companies that it would not have in normal times. And so starting in about the 1980s, you started to see much broader risk-based pricing in the mortgage market. Um, for those who, are, who, who want to get nostalgic about the 70s, the reality was most people paid about the same, but if you were poor credit, you didn't get a mortgage. So it, right. it, you know, it, it was a much tighter band of who was allowed. And so again, since the 1980s, you have had more mortgage access so that more marginal borrowers are able to get in the market, but they pay more. Uh, And so it does tend to be the case historically that the better credit you have, the better rate you get. And so first, let me clarify one misperception. That's still true under this proposal. It's just less true. So you think about your, uh, you know, just a linear relationship or, or a curve between a better credit and and better rates, that relationship has been flattened. Um, so yes, there's an increase for uh, better quality borrowers and a decrease in costs for lower credit borrowers. And there is absolutely an attempt to create a greater cross-subsidy between the two. So uh, don't go out and ruin your credit thinking you're sure. going to get a better mortgage, right? Still pays. Uh, probably for you know people in the mortgage market, this only affects Fannie and Freddie. So, you know, a lot of lenders will portfolio the loan. So for higher, for, if you're a better credit borrower, this is a higher incentive to shop around. You you may find a better rate with a portfolio lender or others, um, but this is absolutely a weakening of that relationship, even if it's still positive. Well, what do you think about this entire concept of the federal government taking upon themselves to encourage homeownership? So I, I think it's worked out poorly. <laughs> so know, far, and, I mean, it's we keep doing it. Yeah, and in fact, you know, and I and I think I say this briefly in in, in my new book um, that uh, you know when I my two years at the White House, I really fought to make sure that uh, we didn't set a home ownership target. You know, both in the Clinton and in the Bush administrations, 
there were homeownership targets. And, and every time somebody would bring that up, I'd be like, no, 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 that went really bad last time. We're not going to do that this time. And I'm at least proud to say, as far as I can tell, we never set a homeownership target. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is much of what drives homeownership uh, is certainly outside of the scope of the mortgage industry. So, you know, I, I, I am very um, proud is probably a strong work because it maybe sound like I'm taking more credit for it. But, you know, my two and a half years uh, heading uh, FHFA was we had the largest annualized uh, increase in black homeownership, you know, since we've been keeping record. But, you know, in A, we were putting people in more sustainable loans, but a lot of it was the uh, strength of the job market and strength of the income market. So over time, homeownership really is predominantly driven by demographics like household structure, uh, age of the population, and income. And, you know, yes, mortgage market can help, but the mortgage market can hinder in its effects are extremely small. So unfortunately, in Washington, there's a real desire to try to engineer homeownership via the mortgage market, and it almost turns out badly every time. I mean, the biggest debacle to me was in the last recession in 2006, when you could simply apply for a mortgage and state what your income was. That didn't seem, that just didn't seem like a good idea to me, Mark. <laughs> it, 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 it is kind of nutty. Now, most of the time <laughs> that was done, you know, somebody was still going to pull a credit file. Yeah. So it generally was not allowable if you were subprime credit, you know, and this was pretty at least for the longest time, limited to the self-employed yeah. and usually required large down payments. Now, part of the problem, you know, part of the problem of the evolution of the mortgage market over time is we often come up with a, um, I hate to say, I don't want to say innovation really, but we come up with a development to address a specific problem. Like here's a specific problem for the self-employed who have very seasonal income and, and you know, may or may not keep track of it all pretty well. And then so we allow that targeted solution for that population. And then it expands to the populations right. in which it's not really appropriate and the usual safeguards that are often put in place get eroded. And that's really the history of the mortgage market, one one erosion of safeguards after another. Right, right. So, But I also feel like this convoluted rule, which creates the um, opposite type of incentives that we want, where you incentivize low credit and you disincentivize high credit scores, you know, which I think a lot of people think about their credit score a lot and try to improve it. I mean, people put serious effort into that and then you're sort of creating a disincentive around that. Um, It follows a pattern that I've seen in the last couple of years of like forgiving student loans and it's following a pattern. And I think that's sort of a, to me, a bigger issue, which is, are we encouraging people to, be financially independent, to work hard and get it, or are we we're doing this meritocracy thing? Or are we sort of moving towards if you well, find yourself in a bind, the government will bail you out even personally? So there's a couple of different factors here, but you are touching upon there's there's a deep philosophical difference with this administration's approach to financial markets. And again, um the student loan is probably the most high profile and unfortunately probably the most costliest at this point too. Um, But there is a sense and it's shocking to me. First, let me state unequivocally as the, as the guy who managed Fannie and Freddie and spent 20 plus years working in the mortgage market, things like credit scores are very predictive of delinquency and default. Mm -hmm. 
Really? Uh, and I only put that out there because a lot of people will in Washington will tell you, well, you know, Greenwich Square's got everything's got a problem, and you know, you have a quantitative background, of course. Um, everything's got a confidence interval. Everything's got errors associated with it. But yes, it rank order predicts. You know, FICO for his rank order predicts delinquency very strongly. So some of the criticism out there um, is wrong, to be frank, okay. from an empirical sense. Now, what a lot of people are trying to get at is not that it's wrong, but the sense that um, that your credit profile as an individual is more a factor of external events. That you know, it's it's yeah. it's it embodies systemic racism or it embodies structural inequalities. And I describe it as, you know, even if you do believe that, which I actually think there's a grain of truth to that, so it's not completely crazy, sure. but it is a shoot, it is a shoot the messenger. So rather than, you know, let's figure out why credit scores may differ dramatically across race, it is, oh, let's just pretend they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> or, you know, obviously you see the same thing with, you know, attempts to get rid of SAT and other things in the education space. Yes. So rather than doing the hard work of, how do we help people improve their credit? How do we get them prepared them for homeownership? It really is a sense of, well, you know, the system's unfair. So we're just going to ignore, you know, these important factors that actually tell us information. Um, and of course, I should note some of the difference uh, in FICO is that African-Americans on average are seven years younger than Caucasians. And um, many of us uh, weren't terribly responsible in our 20s. And you sure. really do see, you see a very tight connection between credit score and age. For instance, so not do you see a tight connection between credit score and income, though? Because I I know just anecdotally offhand, plenty of people that make plenty of money in our paycheck to paycheck and maxed on their credit cards. Is it is it a strong predictor of income? No, it, but uh, so it is a it is a positive predictor of income. So there is a correlation to uh, statistics, I should mm-hmm. say, but it's actually quite weak. You know, it's in the neighborhood of like 0.2, 0.3. So yes, higher income people tend to have higher credit scores, but it is extremely weak predictor. Um, and, you know, again, as you've mentioned, we all know lots of well-off people who don't pay their bills. I'm, I'm related to a couple of them. <laughs> that they still owe me, owe me some money I'd like to collect. Uh, and then we also know lots of lower income, middle income people who do pay their bills. So the, the, there is an attempt sometimes to use this as a proxy for income, and it's a poor proxy. And as, and as you said, it there are a lot of things. I mean, a lot of people spend decades of their life trying to build an 8800 or an 850 and are quite proud of those efforts. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, to me, the, perhaps the most offensive part of all of this is it almost denies agency. It, it, it sort of says that, you know, you are a victim or it says that, you know, you aren't capable of good credit, which I think is just a horrible message to send send people. Uh, and so, again, a lot of borrowers, you know, we all, as I said, you know, in, in our 20s particularly may make mistakes with, with credit. And, and again, that's part of growing up, if you will. Sure. Um, and not everybody needs to be in a mortgage in a house at 25. Sure. <laughs> I know it's a crazy suggestion, right? Hey. Um, so all that said, I really do think it undermines efforts for people to take efforts to improve their credit, which you can do and, and people do do. And, and it punishes those who have uh, really tried over time. But, you know, if I can channel, you know, Elizabeth Warren for a second, you know, there is a you didn't build that philosophy to to credit in, in much of Washington. And I think it is very, 
um, I think it's very dangerous and very wrongheaded. And, and, and quite frankly, it's going to hurt many of the same people they claim to want to help. Yeah, I mean, I hear the same thing about student loans, that they're predatory. I'm like, they're not predatory. They're often related to the cost of the degree you got, which is a reflection of a choice that you've, I mean, like, they're, I wouldn't say they're predatory sounds like, again, people are being victimized by student loans, but when um, they're very easy to get, and when yes, fast FAFSA, pretty easy to fill out in graduate school, you can get as much as you want. So if you decide you want to be a doctor and you can borrow 150000 200000 it's really a reflection more of that than it is predatory. And I, I mean, there are cases you've got some yeah. for-profit higher ed institutions that were predatory, but the idea that we need to forgive every student loan because there are some predatory lenders uh, is, is similar to this and that um, we're making this assumption that people with low credit scores are low income and we need to help them. When you, can you imagine the sort of the scenario in the room when they're, whoever devised this policy is trying to figure out how to help low-income people own a home, and then this came up as the solution? Because it seems like a weird fit. I think a lot of it is really an attempt by the, the Biden administration to engineer outcomes by race. I think this is what they know they can't legally because you have the Fair Housing Act and you have fair lending rules. And so no, they know they can't legally openly discriminate by race, but I quite frankly think that's what they're trying to attempt to do here. Um, and, in, and in their mind, it really is um, a view that lower credit on the part of minorities is systemic factors rather than you know demographic factors like age or, or household structure. And again, because there's a grain of truth to it, they, they take it further than I think is justified. And again, like we went through in 2008, they're setting many of these individuals up for buying at the top of the market in a, in a way that's not going to be sustainable. So I do worry because this isn't simply about, you know, financial stability of the economy or, 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 or simply about, you know, the taxpayer, which all of those things are critical importance, but it's also about the sustainability of, of these families. And so, you know, again, just like the problem for the student loan space is not really the students who graduate and do well and the government just wants to give giveaways that the small number who um, get in for a year or two take debt and, and never complete. And you have a parallel in home ownership where it's not sustainable. So again, it's the unsustainability of it. Um, you know, as an economist, I think prices send important signals. So if you're borrowing, you could get a loan, and it's expensive. That's that's information. Yeah, <laughs> you right. you should learn from that information. And instead, you know, the approach of the Biden administration really is well, you know, let's shoot the messenger. We we wouldn't want to offend anybody's feelings by perhaps letting them know that their credit's not good. <laughs> right. So can you just explain the nuts and bolts? It's, uh, as I understand it, it's a fee. It's not your interest rate on your loan. Correct, but it, it, it enters it. So they're called loan level price adjustments. It's a fee that in theory, or rather on paper, the lender chart is, is paid to deliver the loan to Fannie and Freddie, but obviously it gets amortized you know, in the interest rate. So what it will, in terms of the mortgage borrower, it will nine times out of 10 show up at a higher rate because the lender will finance the fee into the loan. Gotcha. Now, the lender can pay it as a lump sum, but you know that the lenders prefer to just roll it the loan and borrow against it. So it's best to think of interest rates as two part. One part, of course, is just the cost of borrowing. You know, and then the other part of it, it reflects the credit risk of the borrower. And so this is a fee that is added to the loan delivery to reflect that. 
mostly based on the combination of loan to value and the credit quality of the borrower. So again, it's targeted in a way where higher credit borrowers should pay less. And as I mentioned earlier, um, that's still the case, but they're reducing that very much with an intent to create a subsidy. Now, <clears throat> after a lot of blowback and pushback, they have opened this up for some degree of comment. Um, yeah, again, that. to me, I think the solution is you, you just got to get, I mean, you think about it, so I should know, Fannie and Freddie aren't actually exempt from our antitrust laws. And I was going to say, it's you, price fixing, right? <laughs> it, it, absolutely. So <laughs> just because like the government know. is kind of blessing it, uh, in a way of quite, I, I shouldn't have questionable legality. So if you're a borrower who feels like uh, you have been implemented by this, you know, our antitrust laws do have private rights of action. Do you think there'll uh, be a lawsuit? I, I would, I would expect somebody to put some enterprising lawyer to put together a class action on this because there's absolutely legal avenues to do so. Um, and so, I mean, top line is we really just need to get the government out of price fixing in our mortgage market. Right. Um, I mean, at a time when interest rates are going up anyway, and um, I mean, my three kids are in this, like in their 30s entering into the home buying market and they're thinking about it a lot. And what's the credit score and what's the interest rate? Because they grew up with the assumption that 3% mortgages were normal. Like that's a normal. <laughs> They're going to fight so out if the it's not 3%, anyway. they don't know if they want to get into it. And I'm like 3%, not normal, right? 6%, yeah. not to panic. But if they thought they were going to get six, now they're going to get six and a quarter or six and a half, then that is a big, that's a big difference, right? And then it's almost discouraging new homeowners from any entering into the market if they're at the top of the, the top of the curve. I think we've started to see probably the last six to nine months a, a thawing of this view of 3% being normal. <laughs> you know, you you and I know it's not I've normal. seen double digits, Mark. Yeah, exactly, on. exactly. <laughs> you know, so, but but as you mentioned, many, many, many new first-time home buyers have not. And, you know, all it takes is going online and looking at the history of interest rates to know it's not normal, but not everybody does that. And so I think there's been a gradual acceptance over over the last, again, six to nine months that, yeah. hey, we're not going back to three. We're not even going to four or five, <laughs> you know. Right. And my sense would be where we're going to stabilize is probably between five and a half, six and a half. So for anybody thinking about, you know, should I wait? I mean, the first thing that I always caveat to everybody thinking about buying a house is, Make it about the house. I mean, every house yeah. is unique. And so, I, you know, if you find your dream house, don't think it's going to be there in six months because you wait for rates to decline. Yeah. And so, again, if you don't find it, and again, the other flip side of it is don't buy a house you hate just because you think you got a great rate. That's you right. You got to live there. You got to live there. And that should be the first primary, you know, outlook on that. So in the 70s, when the um, differential was flatter between... Uh, credit risk and credit worthy. Was there a difference in the in how it reflected in home ownership? I mean, that's where we're moving, right? We're moving more back towards that '70s model, with the exception of that you can't get a mortgage group. I think you can probably get one. But, well, um, so, so what do you think uh, that this will do to the uh, housing market? Great question. I, I would say the caveat is what the administration is trying to do is, on one hand, go back to more of an average cost pricing model where everybody pays the same, but they're trying to use the levers of government to not get the 70s outcome of where bad borrowers are worse credit. I, I certainly don't want to make this sound like a normative 
judgment. There are lots of reasons someone might have bad credit outside of their own control. But again, there are choices too. So, but what the administration is trying to do is try to make sure that doesn't happen by essentially, you know, either using government fiats or pricing to try to make sure that, you know, people of weaker credit still get mortgages. So they want to keep that aspect of it. Now, it's important to remember, going back to our Econ 101, the biggest constraint in most of America today on the housing is supply. You know, I, I happen to be uh, here in California today on the other, other side of the country from my usual, and it's just incredibly difficult to build housing here. And so changes in mortgage underwriting simply either simply end up changing the price, not the quantity because of the restrictions. Now, you know, I'm a glass half full guy and you've seen a number of jurisdictions across America that have started to make it easier to build and and try to improve the entitlement process. And really, the reason homeownership is kind of stagnated, uh, we did see significant increases in homeownership from 2017, you know, up until about 2021. But a lot of that was we really started to see increases in jobs and income in, in a way for the middle and lower part of the spectrum. Uh, I mean, the, the, the first years after the 2008 crisis, most of the income growth was really at the top. Yeah. And we started to see that spread out. And again, emphasizing the real determinants of home ownership are ultimately going to be demographics and income. But that said, you can change short-term changes in mortgage demand, housing demand, but you've got to get the houses built. So I don't really think that, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I talk a lot about this in, in my book, Shelter from the Storm, focused on what we did in the COVID crisis, that we saw significant increases in homeownership even while I was tightening the credit box because it was focused on sustainability, not simply getting somebody in the house but getting themselves in the house in a way that they'll be able to stay. Yeah. Yeah. We talk a lot about, I, I don't want to go off topic here slightly, but Missouri has a program where developers can get credits for building low-income housing. And it's just a debacle. It has not helped with low-income housing at all. Because it's really just a housing stock issue rather than this weird system they develop where you can trade credits like chits if you agree to build low-income housing and then there's a secondary market for the credits, it's just a big mess. It's oh, not yeah, a the way tax to get credit is, 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 is agreed. A lot of problems in the subsidies. There's a federal program like that yeah. too, right? And we decided to do a state match to it. Um, but what do we do in terms of like the um, the Bay Area housing crisis? Portland has a housing crisis. Like, what do we do with these areas that have just made it so difficult to build? And now you have, like, this is going sideways a little bit, just yeah. large groups of homeless people on the streets. I mean, what what do we do? What have we done wrong? This isn't going to address it, obviously, this this federal new federal rule, but just so more there, there two, I think, yeah, I mean, there's two factors I, I, I would look at. Um, the first is, is moving most zoning to, to a right to build. And what I mean by that is not, you know, anything, anywhere, anytime. It's really that you set the parameters, you know, this area could be zoned for residential, this could be zoned for commercial, but so you set the parameters, you set the building codes, and essentially anybody who meets the rules gets to build. The problem in many jurisdictions is you have multiple, you know, veto points where even if a developer meets all the rules that everybody has agreed upon, there can still be multiple vetoes after that. And again, you run the clock and time is money in development. So again, by right to build, And again, I want to emphasize, you agree on the rules ahead of time, you agree which areas are off limits and which are limits, and then you let people build there. That would be the biggest. 
The other suggestion I would really, um, and, you know, oddly enough, I mean, I, I have to credit uh, former Senator Harry Reid for really being the architect of this, but, um, you know, take Nevada. It is 80% of the land in Nevada is owned by the federal government. Of course, that is the outlier, uh, but even California, almost half the land is owned by the federal government. And so Senator Reid came up with a solution where there is essentially a process where federal land around greater Las Vegas and Clark County is transferred into unit and into the possibilities of building actual housing. And that's the way they've kept Las Vegas affordable is they've expanded essentially the developer land by converting federal land. And of course, in the case of California, I recognize not a lot of people are going to want to live in death Valley, but there's actually a tremendous amount of federal land within the coast uh, you, you think about maybe the best case, you know, historical example of this when, of course, after BRAC, the Presidio was redeveloped at, at rather low densities, but there's housing there. And yeah. uh, certainly in uh, Washington State, uh, Idaho, Oregon, many pla- in most of the West, there's a ton of federal land within urban areas that can be converted. And you don't need to do a lot. I'm, I'm talking one, two percent at most. I'm not talking about like putting condos up in Yellowstone. That's not what anybody's suggesting. <laughs> but there's fellow there, there is federal land that can be used. Um and you know we may want to do another you know Brack sort of base alignment where maybe there are military land that can be converted. Um so there's a lot of land that can be used in the West. This doesn't really work um you know in the Northeast and in, in New York and places like that. But it's it, it is a solution for you know western half of the country if we can get people to agree on it. And again Harry Reid came up with a model for Nevada. We know how to do it. We've done it. Yeah, I mean, generally, I'm of the opinion that it's better for the government to stay out of the way than get in and meddle. But this this last thing that we were here talking about, that is to me, uh, to me, just stands up, stands out as government meddling in, in making things worse and not making it better. And I just would love to figure out how to stop that from happening in the future, but I don't know what it is. I mean, they're smart people, but I just think they thought, here's our problem. How about this for a solution? And it just, to me, is at crossroads. And I don't see why we don't have enough historical record to know this. Yeah, what they do know, they just don't care. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things in Washington where, I mean, there is a fair amount of ignorance and a number of issues. And, and I do feel like that the current uh, group of regulators and overseers of the housing market fundamentally don't understand housing markets and and, and mortgage markets. And that's why'd why you I, leave? I know that, well, it wasn't by choice. So, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I think you have a number of of people who really don't know what they're doing. And of course, we see that across the board. I mean, we're told we were told forever that inflation was transitory, and yeah. you know, and, and so uh, unfortunately, I feel like many of the economic lessons of the past have been forgotten or ignored. By, by this administration. Um, but, you know, there's a backlash and, and people are starting to slowly change this around. But in terms of the pricing rules for Fannie and Freddie, we really do need to get them out of conservatorship. And that's what, what I was trying to do is reprivatize the companies um, because they really are becoming a bigger and bigger, just off budget slash fund for political purposes. And, and that is dangerous, you know, for everybody. It's dangerous for the economy, taxpayer, and, and it's dangerous for the borrowers in question. Um, we didn't talk about it that much, but I do want to mention again, you have a new book, Shelter from the Storm, how a COVID mortgage meltdown was averted. I think a lot of things were happily averted with COVID that we yeah. thought we saw coming. So um, if anyone is interested, they can find out more about you on the Cato website. Yep, Cato, absolutely. And of Cato. course, the book, can be, and the book can be bought anywhere. There's a link on Cato, but awesome. Amazon, Barnes and Noble everywhere. And uh, 
really a success story of how you can help. Uh, you know, as we're wrapping up, I'll just put it this way. You know, kind of the core of the book is how we helped uh, relative to the 2008 programs, twice as many people, six times as quickly at a fraction of the cost. That's awesome. And that That's you can great. have good efficient, good, efficient government is possible. In the midst of a crisis, right? In the midst of a crisis, exactly. Which is great. Um, thank you so much for joining us and taking time. I really appreciate it and explaining this to us. And uh, uh, just thanks for being on the show. Uh, really my pleasure. Mm-hmm.